Hello and welcome to the third series of Insights, the podcast from Understanding Society. Understanding Society is a longitudinal survey that captures life in the UK in the 21st century. Every year we ask each member of thousands of the same households across the UK about different aspects of their life. Each episode of Insights explores how our data has been used in a key area. We look at what we found and what we can learn from it. I'm Catherine MacDonald, your host for this episode, where we'll be looking at the issue of housing in terms of moving, owning and inheriting. Here to discuss this with me are Dr. Rory Coulter, our topic champion for housing and Associate Professor of Human Geography at University College London, where his research focuses on population mobility, housing dynamics and neighbourhood change. And David Sturrock, Senior Research Economist at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, specialising in the retirement, saving and ageing sector. Now, I'd like to start with the recent announcement that England is now the most difficult place to find a home in the developed world, uh, with a greater proportion of people in England living in substandard properties when compared with the European Union average. So that was from the Home Builders Federation. And I'd like to ask you both to react to that. And if I could start with you, David. Well, maybe it's first of all, just asking ourselves, why is it that something like this might have arisen? And I think here there's some long-term trends that's worth putting into context. The first and maybe the kind of big driving factor behind all this is the big increase in house prices compared to people's incomes that happened from the 1990s onwards and most strongly up until the financial crisis in 2008. And what we've seen uh, kind of during and after that period is a decline in home ownership, particularly for people at younger ages, and a big shift in the kinds of properties that people are living in at younger ages towards the private rented sector. That has all sorts of consequences. That's really maybe where people are kind of at the sharp end in terms of what they perceive as a struggle to find uh, somewhere affordable to live. Um, And that has important consequences for thinking about inequalities in housing, both between and within generations, and also for people's decisions about where in the country they live and the sorts of of places that they're able to afford to live in. And so that's really the kind of big picture trend and which I what I think is is behind that kind of statement. Okay. And Rory, what about you? Would you agree with that? David's kind of given a really good summary of I think the sort of the long term um, broad picture. I mean, what I'm primarily interested in in my research really is kind of picking up on the kind of experiences of the people who are sort of living through these times. And I think um, David sort of alluded to the way in which our experiences of housing and the kind of the, the sort of the lived experience of this, this what's often called a housing crisis is, is very different. So for some people, actually, the housing system over the last 20, 30, 40 years, you know, it's worked quite well for them. Um, and many people have made considerable amounts of money from the homes that they've been living in, whereas other people, you know, other social groups, other people in different places have had a much harder time. So inequality and disparity is really fundamental to thinking about housing in the 21st century. It's a sort of a range of different kinds of interlocking crises rather than one single crisis. And I think that's really important to think about when it comes to thinking through policy solutions, because there's probably no single magic bullet 
that we can sort of fire at the housing system that's going to solve everything for us. Absolutely. It's just all so interconnected. Yes. And Rory, you've recently written a book that looks um, at how deepening inequalities and sort of the wider processes of economic and social change are altering the way people move between houses and neighbourhoods during their life. What prompted you to write that and sort of what gaps in our knowledge and understanding were you hoping to fill with that research? The book was sort of inspired by some of the things we've just been we saw picking up on. Um, and I wanted really to understand, to humanise that sort of discussion, to move beyond the discussion of kind of statistics, numbers, you know, particularly housing production targets that we, we often hear so much about to help us better understand kind of how people actually live through this. Where do people live? When do people move? Um, who is it that moves to a more advantaged neighbourhood when they relocate? When do people buy homes? What are the factors that influence who buys a home and, and who remains a renter, for example? I really wanted to kind of unpack that, look at the people um, and their life experiences using some of the data that understanding society actually collects. Yes. Yeah, so so talk us through how Understanding Society helped with this research. Yeah. So um, Understanding Society is, is, a, is a kind of a resource that I've used an awful lot um, throughout my kind of research career. And it's just a really valuable data set because it has so much information about housing and, and the kind of places people are living in. So, you know, just by way of a couple of examples, I mean, one of the public conversations about housing tends to focus very heavily on young people. Um, and David sort of mentioned this and particularly the move out of the parental home um, and eventually potentially into home ownership um, and understanding society because it follows individuals and households through time allows us to look at the way in which that process of moving out of the parental home and buying a house is, is actually is quite unequal um, and it's influenced by a range of factors some of them personal but some of them related to your family background um, in terms of your parental characteristics for example I've also done some work with understanding society really showing that actually households where partners are experiencing difficulties paying for housing those partnerships are actually more likely to subsequently break up so there are kind of real human consequences um, of the housing crisis that understanding society allows us to, to understand in much better detail. A core argument in the book is that housing sort of reflects and amplifies inequalities of wealth, prosperity, health, employment, education, family. So so to sort of pick up on that, you know, from your previous answer, if we can sort of take each one in turn and ask you to elaborate on how it affects all those areas. So if we start with sort of wealth and prosperity, I mean, obviously, that's probably the most obvious one. But could we start with that one? Yeah, I mean, this idea of housing as both influencing the course of your life, but also reflecting the way your life develops is, is really the central theme of the book. And wealth and inequality, prosperity is really a great place to start thinking about that. Housing, I mean, clearly is is really important for wealth in Britain and also in, in many other countries uh, as well. Um, whether or not people own their home is a really big determinant of whether or not they you know, the, the kind of the wealth holdings they have. We, we know this from a range of different um, data sets. And that has, that has a lot of ramifications. Um, and it has a lot of ramifications we really need to think through when we're devising policy. The wealth people accumulate, it's not static. It can be used, it can be transmitted between generations. Okay, so there's implications there for social mobility. So some children grow up in affluent owner-occupied households and their parents might have a lot more money to transmit to them than people whose parents are not homeowners, for example. That's a really big issue. We also need to think about prosperity in the day-to-day -day sense. And I think the events of the last couple of years have really shown that actually how much we pay for our homes and also the bills that we pay, how volatile and risky that, that can be and how that can have such a big impact on, on our standard of living. So, you know, there's really bread and butter issues of prosperity that can only really be understood by thinking about housing and, and the kinds of homes we live in and potentially also the broader family context that 
we are part of as well. And so would you say that the housing market is sort of complicit in keeping wealth in the same places within the UK? I think it's potentially partly about place, but it's what I sort of think through in the book is, is more about family. Okay, so this idea that some some children, by virtue of having parents who potentially own homes in particular locations, that might give you a head start, both in terms of accessing kind of job opportunities, but also in terms of the wealth that's available to you when you potentially move out and, and want to buy your own home. Um, so it, it's about place for sure. I mean, wealth is is incredibly spatial, but at the same time, it's also about family. It's about the connections between generations. And what about health? How does housing affect inequalities when it comes to our health? We've known for a very long time that housing is intimately related to health. If we think back to the 19th century, a lot of the kind of public health reform in the 19th century, I mean, housing was integral um, to that. Um, I mean, today we can think about health in kind of physical and kind of more mental, the more mental side as well of, of health. Um, and in physical terms, we know there's, there's good evidence, I think, that kind of damp, cold, poor quality housing is really bad for a range of health outcomes. And there have been a number of kind of tragic cases that have stimulated public discussion of this and public recognition of it over recent years. We also know that where we live matters for our exposure to risks. So thinking through things like air pollution, for example, as being a key risk that depends very much on where you live. Uh, so that has long-term imp- implications for our life expectancies and disparities in those. But psychological health, mental well-being is also intimately linked um, to housing. I sort of alluded to this earlier. Um, the quality, the security, the affordability of our housing, there's really good evidence, some from longitudinal data sets like Understanding Society, that Housing conditions, housing affordability shape our mental well-being. That can be a bad thing, but it can also be an opportunity for policy to really make a difference to people's lives. Well-targeted policy interventions that improve housing could actually have a health payback. Yes, and we'll come on to those in a minute. But before we do, to just sort of complete the list, as it were, employment and education, again, affected by our housing. The most obvious way we think about education and housing is kind of access to schools. I mean, in many places, you know, schools still have catchment areas. And that means that the housing market and where we can afford to live, where the housing we can access, it influences our access to different kinds of to schools, which obviously has long term implications for, for kind of children's educational um, prospects. Um, in employment terms, I mean, one of the things that, that policymakers have been very concerned about in recent years is really whether or not the housing market and difficulties affording to move to kind of prosperous cities really are sort of choking off social mobility preventing people from moving to get a better job to improve their income to get a higher degree for example um, and the evidence on that seems to be a bit a bit mixed um, but we know very clearly and we can see in the in the data that access to jobs does vary a lot depending on where you live so housing and the access to housing that we have as, as households really is um, a key factor in, in shaping our kind of employment outcomes. A more bread and butter example really was through the pandemic. I think we all saw the way in which our ability to work remotely or work at home is very different depending on the kind of housing conditions we live in. And we can still see that today. A lot of people are still hybrid working, but that requires us to have space and time and, and kind of resources at home to, to sort of facilitate it. So employment intimately related to our housing conditions, really. Absolutely. And I think, you know, thinking back to the pandemic, we can all relate to that working from our kitchen tables and et cetera. Um, So noting then that that it is an issue that touches almost all areas of our life. What policy recommendations would you like to see happening? How can we begin to sort these inequalities? No, I mean, that's a really, really great question. Um, and it's not one I think that 
can be answered simply. And I think actually acknowledging that is, is really crucial. And that's something that I would love to sometimes see in, in debate, debates about housing policy, uh, recognising that actually a lot of housing issues are bound up with issues elsewhere. So, you know, for example, the labour market inequalities, um, difficulties accessing stable, well-paid jobs, those obviously have housing consequences. What I'd love to see, um, the sort of the one thing I would really most love to see, I guess, in, in terms of housing policy discussions, was, was is moving beyond the numbers game of, of kind of moving beyond statements like we're going to build 300,000 homes a year and then assuming that's going to kind of solve all of our problems. What I'd like to see is a recognition that actually... There are a lot of interlocking crises here and that we're going to have to use different levers to address those different crises. Um, so housing quality is going to require some form of investment in the physical makeup of our stock, however we fund that and however we target it. That's not something we can easily change by building a lot of new housing quickly, for example. So I, I, what I'd really love to see is moving beyond the numbers game towards a kind of recognition that lots of policy levers in lots of areas of, of kind of across government departments really are going to have to be pulled to solve the housing um, issues we're facing. Indeed. David, how would you react to Rory's uh, findings and what he's talked about um, there? Well, I think it's fascinating and it does really chime in with some of the things that I've been thinking about and researching in relating to housing. I came to thinking about housing really through the lens and the motivation of trying to understand social mobility. By that I mean how far are your economic outcomes related to those of your parents? We actually did a bit of research using Understanding Society, where we measured uh, how much your wealth is related to your parents' wealth in the UK. So when you're at around age 30, we know that for each 10% wealthier that your parents are, uh, you are about 4% wealthier on average. So kind of in that sense, inequalities in wealth in parents' generations are reflected, uh, not fully, but to quite an extent in wealth inequalities in the generations of their children. What we want to do is to understand more the role that housing is playing and housing markets are playing in that process, because housing is one of the biggest components of household wealth, as Rory said, and it's one that has a lot of particular dynamics. So we wanted to, to unpack that. And so some of the things that Rory's saying really chimes in with some of the things that we found. So to take just a couple of quick examples, if you look again at those people in, in early adulthood, then if you compare people who have the same earnings through their 20s, say the same level of education as well, then people with wealthier parents are more likely to be homeowners. They get onto the housing ladder, if you want to put that at an earlier age. There's also some other evidence we found in another survey that does look like it might be a kind of direct impact, at least partly, of uh, parents' wealth and wealth transfers. So we see that there are substantial amounts of wealth that are transferred from parents to children when children are in their 20s and 30s and more than half of that is reported as being used for property purchase or improvement and so there's this very strong link between intergenerational transfers of wealth and uh, housing choices and as Rory noted if being a homeowner has kind of knock-on consequences for your wealth accumulation or maybe the sorts of labor markets that you're able to access then it could have kind of amplifying effects for social mobility in various different dimensions. So I think that this connection between uh, housing, housing markets and family dynamics is one that's really key. And we kind of have some understanding of how important it is. But I think that there's um, more to be done to understand really what the effects are 
and also you know what would be the impacts of, therefore of different uh, housing policies in the sense that their effects would depend on how they interact with those family transfers. And so we're these family transfers, we're talking way before inheritance here. We're talking about, are we parents funding certain things for their children where they are able to? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you could kind of think of there being two significant times in life when people get these transfers of wealth and they're quite far apart. So there are the sorts of transfers that people get when they're in their 20s and 30s when they're from their parents when they're still alive. They're smaller than inheritances, but they're still pretty substantial and they're very much linked to home purchase um, and other things like weddings. Then there's the kind of second time in your life, which is when you're probably in your late 50s or maybe even early 60s now, which is going to be the typical age for inheritance when people are receiving inheritances. So yes, they're kind of two um, separate phases with maybe quite different things going on. So I'm curious then to understand how you level that out, because parents with those means are always going to want to help their children. What do we do to kind of level that playing field? Yeah, well, I think there's a few responses to that. I should note that the extent to which you want to equalise these things, there's lots of value judgments and kind of that really depends on what you think the government should be doing in your kind of ethical standpoint, as well as the economic evidence. But there's a a couple of different ways in which if you did want to kind of equalise the impact of these things, you could be going about it. So on the one hand, yes, there is kind of directly taxing and intervening on the transfer of wealth across generations. In the UK, there is very little taxation of these kind of during life transfers, because if you make a transfer more than seven years before death, it's definitely not going to be taxed by inheritance tax. And most people don't pay any inheritance tax at all anyway. By contrast, in a lot of other countries, there are gift taxes that do apply on sometimes quite modest amounts of transfers of wealth. It would be a big change, but it's possible if you wanted to, to to kind of introduce a, a system of taxation of transfers that would tax these sorts of gifts more. And that might have the effect of kind of reducing how much people do give and maybe also giving you revenues, which you can then use to fund transfers or other public services or, or, or directly, say, public housing, which could be given to other people who maybe including those who didn't receive these wealth transfers from family. But I suppose the other angle to go at is to say, well, why is it that these transfers matter so much in the first place? And can we do something to change the way that our economy works and maybe our housing markets work such that these transfers aren't so important? So, you know, the big thing that for many people is forefront in their minds uh, in relation to these transfers is saving up for a deposit to buy a house Now that on many measures is much more difficult than it used to be for a host of reasons. If it weren't that you have to save up so much compared to your earnings in order to own your own home, or if it weren't the case that owning your your, your own home was so much uh, kind of the objective, then maybe it wouldn't matter as much whether you have these wealthy parents who can make these transfers to you. And so that kind of opens up the whole set of questions about how housing market policy should be. And you recently wrote a policy piece for the Green Budget, and you found that piece found that inherited wealth is growing. This is exactly the type of thing that we're talking about now, right? By inherited wealth, do you mean transfers that happen during life as well? Or Yeah, well, in, I mean, in this case, we were really focusing in on the transfers that happen at death when inheritance tax applies. But the trends in you know wealth at death are going to be reflected to some degree in the wealth transfers that happen earlier in life too, because these 
transfers of wealth are getting bigger compared to people's incomes. And that's because of a few different things, including the increase in house prices compared to incomes that I talked about earlier, but also in general, wealth has become bigger compared to people's incomes. And that's particularly happened for people at older ages. So kind of each generation of retirees is much richer than the last because as they went through their lives, they earned a lot more and so built up more wealth and have also therefore, you know, being able to buy bigger houses, which means that there's bigger gaps between those older generations. They also, across the generations, have had fewer children. So that wealth has been split between a fewer number of children per person. And it's also the case that incomes at younger ages have been growing more slowly in recent decades than has been sort of historic expectation. So while this wealth is growing quite quickly, earned incomes are not. And so inheritances become bigger compared to your other sources of income. The kind of biggest effect of that is to increase the gaps between those with richer and with poorer parents. And so it's kind of expanding those sorts of inequalities by family background, which means a reduction in social mobility. As we found throughout the series of insights, the more you talk about a policy area like this, just the more you unearth and the more complicated it becomes. Um, Let's move on to inheritance tax, which is a tax on the estate of someone who's died. Currently, there's normally no inheritance tax to pay if either the value of your estate is below the 325,000 threshold, or if you leave everything above that threshold to your spouse, civil partner, a charity or a community amateur sports club. Also, if you give away your home to your children or grandchildren, the threshold increases to 500,000. I've understood that right. And the standard inheritance tax is 40%. So, David, what is the thinking behind inheritance tax? Why do we have it? I think the main reason that you might want to have an inheritance tax is to try and reduce some of those inequalities that I just mentioned, that is the inequalities between those with richer and poorer parents, who are then those who receive more in inheritance versus those who receive less. So there's kind of an idea that these sorts of differences, which are kind of out of the control of those who are receiving the inheritances, are kind of, in some sense, worthy of being um, reduced and redistributed. I mean, a second reason is maybe that if you think that what people leave in terms of their wealth at the end of their life is just wealth that is left over in some sense because either you know they're living in their house and so they're not going to sell it before they die or because they just have savings left over because they didn't know how long they were going to be living for, then taxing that is kind of economically efficient because people are not going to change how they behave the more that it's um, taxed because it's just something which they have not intended to leave is kind of left over when they die. So there's kind of two reasons, one from fairness and one from economic efficiency. It's maybe fair to say that there's not necessarily one consensus or a kind of clear idea in, in public debate about why we have it. And maybe that's why it can be so contentious. Yes. And a recent YouGov poll found that just 20 percent actually of people deemed inheritance tax fair. I think we've kind of addressed why that might be. Who do you think inheritance tax hits the hardest? Well, that's an interesting question. And really, you know, it kind of depends who you think. What does it mean for inheritance tax to hit you, I suppose? Some people see it as a tax on the person who's leaving the wealth. And in that sense, I suppose, you know, the people who pay the most are those with the very largest estates, although it's worth noting that at the very top, 
the very largest estates actually pay a lower rate of inheritance tax because they're able to take advantage of various reliefs and exemptions for inheritance tax. So, but in some sense, it, it hits the very wealthiest, the hardest. If you view it from the perspective of those who get the inheritances, then the largest amounts of tax are paid on the inheritances that are in the end received by the people with the wealthiest parents. Um, but of course, you know, the implicit counterfactual that we have in mind there is is the kind of one where there's no inheritance tax. Of course, you might say if you if you were comparing a situation to where inheritances were just spread completely equally between all people, then you would see it as as hitting others differently. And those with the very largest inheritance actually received more than they would have otherwise done. So it yeah, really depends on the perspective you take as well. And some countries don't have inheritance tax, do they? So presumably that's what we see happening there. That's right. So there's actually been a bit of a trend in recent decades for countries to get rid of their inheritance taxes. And it's happened in a few places, New Zealand, Norway, Austria, Slovakia, and also for those who have inheritance taxes to reduce them. That's really mostly, I think, a response to this unpopularity of inheritance taxes. I mean, a lot of people view it as, you know, I've paid my tax once, I shouldn't have to pay it again before I pass it to my kids. And governments seem to respond to that. And indeed, in the UK, every now and again, there's another discussion comes up, including recently, about whether or not inheritance tax will be abolished. It seems like, it, you know, maybe it could be a popular policy. I thought maybe that is also changing over time as these inheritance dynamics change too. And in the countries that don't have it, do we have a sense of whether indeed it is deepening inequalities? So I think one thing that's kind of interesting about inheritances is that at least if you look in a very kind of immediate and static way at the effect that they have on wealth inequalities, is that inheritances actually tend to reduce them uh, because while people who are poorer receive smaller inheritances, they're actually bigger on average compared to their existing wealth than those who are wealthier. So it kind of closes the gaps, at least in, in relative terms. So the ratio of wealth between the top and the bottom. So now, whether or not inheritance tax um, is going to reduce wealth inequalities are then going to depend on how progressive it is. So it could vary actually quite a lot country to country. So this is definitely something which is kind of will be investigated more and more as these changes roll out. But I think the maybe most crucial thing to bear in mind is that even if inheritances and are having this kind of equalizing effect on the distribution of wealth, they can still be increasingly gaps between those with more wealthy and less wealthy parents. So that is to say, they can still be reducing social mobility. So it's slightly kind of counterintuitive to think about, but that's a particular type of inequality and probably the one which justifies the existence of an inheritance tax. So it's probably that that we really want to be um, focusing on when we're, we're saying what is the effect of inheritance tax. And so in the UK, my understanding is that there's sort of a larger and growing proportion of us will be affected by inheritance tax. And I understand that you found that although the revenue from inheritance tax is small, increasing levels of wealth mean that obviously that revenue will rise in the coming years. So if we were to leave it exactly as it is, what do you think we'd be looking at in the future? Yeah, so we found that just due to those increasing levels of wealth, the revenues from the inheritance tax look like they could double in the next 10 years. So in terms of the proportion of people paying the tax, it's increased from around 4% just a few years ago to already about 6% now. We thought that could go up to more than 7% um, and, and potentially I- increase further. 
So, I mean, still a small proportion of the population, we should kind of keep that in context. But it would mean that, you know, more more people are paying over time. The revenues are small, but not negligible. So it becomes more important that inheritance taxes designed well, if it's going to be kept in place, because, you know, it is potentially more important source of revenues in future years. Rory, I'm curious to know, where do you sit when it comes to inheritance tax? Do you think we should have it? Do you think it should be abolished or reformed or left as it is? I guess my interest in my, where I can maybe come in on this on this question of inheritance is relating back to, to housing and housing access. So thinking through um, and using some of the Understanding Society data to, to actually, we, we can actually start to, to get a handle on what impact inheritance and receiving kind of gifts of from parents and uh, from other family members has on people's housing conditions there are questions in understanding society that allow us to do that and i think it's it's really interesting looking at the data because we can see that you know there is a there, there seems to be around about a third of housing purchases um, in the data are partly supported by these kinds of wealth transmissions not all inheritances but also the kinds of gifts that david's been discussing um, between family members who are um, when, when parents are still alive transmitting money to their children. So there's, there's a good proportion, quite a sizable proportion of the housing market activity of the housing purchases are being supported by these kinds of, of transmissions. Um, and we can also start to delve into detail and look not just at whether or not people are able to buy a house because they've received a gift, but also where they buy their house and what are, what are the sort of kinds of houses they buy as well. This is a, very much something that we're working on at the moment, really. And there seems to be some tentative evidence emerging that actually people who've received some support are able to kind of reduce the amount they need to borrow when they buy a house, which obviously could be quite beneficial to them in, in sort of financial terms. So, you know, while I, I wouldn't like to come in too much on, on the intricacies of inheritance tax, um, because I, I don't know enough about it, um, clearly the sort of issues David's been describing uh, and the way in which social mobility is, is shaped by transmissions uh, of inherited, but also you know, inter vivos transmissions as well, tr transmissions while people are alive, um, is clearly a really, really crucial issue for governments um, that on the one hand, I, I sort of aspire to a, a socially mobile society, um, while on the other hand, also having a, an inheritance tax system that I think many people would agree is, is imperfect, um, regardless of whether your your political persuasions. And talking about social mobility there, so the sort of the, the stock way, I guess, of, of thinking about social mobility, you imagine children growing up in rural areas who are then moving to cities and sort of leaving their local communities and sort of, you know, in the worst case scenario, leaving those communities bereft of their talent and their input. I'm curious to know your thoughts on that, because you mention where these funds are transferred from parents to children during life. Do you find that that enables them to take a bigger leap and maybe move further away? Or do you find that that doesn't really come into play? Do you have a sense of that? I think it's too early to tell, sadly, at the moment, as, as to the sort of the geography um, and the geographical implications of, of these kinds of transmissions of wealth. I think there is a strong reason to think that perhaps it's sort of in theoretical terms that people who are helped and supported in some way are able then to make a kind of a bigger gain than they might otherwise have been able to do. Now that gain may be on the housing market, but it could also be in terms of other areas of life that matter for social mobility. So thinking through things like um, being able to 
kind of moved to London um, in order to to spend time working as an intern or um, in kind of these roles that might give you a springboard into an advantaged occupation. Those opportunities are not available to everyone. They depend on where your parents are living, um, whether or not your parents have got enough money to kind of support you as you make that kind of transition into the the labor market potentially as well as the housing market and i think this is something that again i was trying to discuss in in the book was about the connections that housing has with other areas of life um, and the ways in which family is kind of deeply embedded in that with that complex picture in mind um i'd like to ask you both you know we're heading towards a general election what would you like to hear being promised when it comes to housing? And I appreciate that is a huge question. Um, but David, if I could start with you, what are your sort of priorities? What would you most like to hear? I think there's a few things you can do from the economist's point of view. Just these are kind of smaller tweaks to improve the tax system, get rid of some of the special allowances in the inheritance tax system, including for the family home, deal with the council tax system to revalue it and make it fairer. Abolishing stamp duty could improve the way that the housing market performs. These are probably, they're going to have some impact. They're maybe sort of relatively small. These bigger things that we often maybe hear more about, like plans for housing supply, thinking about how to regulate the private rental market. These are really big issues. I guess maybe one general principle is just to have some sort of longer term plan and to give people some certainty and sense of direction. So rather than, you know, chopping and changing uh, frequently, as it seems, we we just kind of need some sense of more strategic direction. What that is, I guess we would need more time to get into. Indeed, some some stability. Rory, what about what about you? What same question to you? What would you like to hear being promised when it comes to housing? I completely agree with kind of what David's been saying there, particularly around things like council tax reform uh, and the need to rethink stamp duty, which again is one of those taxes that nobody seems to like, and yet it still seems to be with us. I guess one additional thing I would really like to see is thinking through uh, is kind of investment in stock, you know, in order to make this kind of a green transition, but also in order to improve people's lives now. I think that's one area that policymakers had made good gains on 10, 15 years ago. There was investment flowing into making the stock, you know, more energy efficient, uh, greener heating systems, you know, kind of micro-generation of power at home, all these kind of things that we know need to happen very quickly now in order to, to get to net zero quickly. We need that to be kind of revived in, in some form. And I'm not sure how one should do it. Um, that's That's not my area of expertise, but I think that would have long-term benefits for the country, but also for a range of areas of people's lives. Um, so thinking through health, but also affordability, reducing people's bills. You know, that's a key way to improve people's lives here and now in housing terms. So summary, very much echo what David's been saying, but um, I'd also like to hear more about kind of uh, investment in the physical stock. My thanks to Dr. Rory Coulter and to David Sturrock. You can find out more about how the data from Understanding Society is changing practice and informing policy by visiting the website understandingsociety.ac.uk and by following us on social media. This was a research podcast production. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts.